and hand out our text for today, which starts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 14. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to run ahead and start chapter 3. I start the text here in uh, verse 14, which we had already covered last week, just so we have a kind of a context for um, what I wanted to begin with in our study today. So I'll just read it here. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles <coughs> that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. I want to stop, look at that last sentence to begin our study today because we looked at all that other material before. Um, but wrath has come upon them at last. What wrath? I mean, seriously, what wrath is he talking about? And every scholar has ever studied this has multiple theories, but he's saying the Jews have now experienced wrath because the words wrath has come, the words has come is a past tense phrase. It's an aorist tense which also means it's complete, it's done, it's finished. Uh, the thing that comes to my mind is when they were crucifying Christ and they said uh, something about the blood be upon us and our children. Right. And I'm wondering if it has something to do with that. It could be, yeah. That, you know, this is what, 30 years later, so it's got to be one more generation. Yeah, about 20 years later, yeah. Okay. So it's it's still fresh in everybody's mind. Yeah, and maybe it's the persecution uh, by he, the Roman he's, government. Well, it could be the it could be that it could be the the persecution of the Roman government. Yes. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, they committed the unpardonable sin when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Right. And because of that, then they're no longer. Uh, Mercy is no longer available to them. They are after. under judgment forever. Correct. Okay. That is the unpardonable sin. Right. Accused. And so instead of saying, <clears throat> as some were trying to point at a particular event, it's more of a spiritual condition for those who have rejected Christ. Not necessarily, because some would say, well, he's, this means that Thessalonians was written after 70 AD because Paul's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, that's where people jump to when they say the wrath has already come upon them. And you go, well, in 52 AD, there wasn't any event to talk about, so it, it must not be an event. Well, maybe, yeah, probably not. <clears throat> it is more likely a spiritual thing. As I wrote here, those who reject the Messiah and fight against the gospel are under a sentence of wrath. John 3.36. I will read it very quickly. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Yeah. Like what Pastor Jim was saying, God gives them over to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Uh, we find that in Romans 1.18, which I have right here, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Yeah. And also uh, early on in, in verse 15, when Paul's referencing the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, this was not only during the ministry of Jesus. Right. They had a long, ongoing history of rejecting God, reaching out to them uh -huh. in love uh -huh. by rejecting the prophets and killing the prophets. So this was not a one-time event. This was a continual condition of theirs, which, you know, all the prophets had to deal with. Well... This is further illustrated by the word that we translate as wrath in the English. Now we typically, I would say typically, but if someone were to say, well, what, is, what does wrath mean? You probably would say well, it means anger. I mean, generally. Uh, but there is a Greek word for anger. And that's not the word we find here. This Greek word for anger is akin to a fire that has touched a bed of dry straw. It's fast, it's hot, but once the straw's gone, the fire's gone. You can just think of it as a, um, you know, a flash of anger and you lash out. The word that's here, make sure I keep spelling this right because if you switch the two middle letters you get a different word. Uh, it's not ogre, it's orge. And orge actually means long-lasting, slow-burning anger. An anger or a slow-burning fire that cannot be pacified or put out. Uh, yeah, the, the worst and least uh, a weak comparison would be the leftovers of a fire where the embers are still burning underneath and you can't see it but it's there and it's very dangerous extremely dangerous in fact it can start the fire all over again because it doesn't go out um, we actually had a couple years back we had we used the um, like the Duraflame logs in our fireplace. And we have now learned that once it's burned out, you need to go in and knock the leftovers apart. Because we left one in there, and you look at it and it's dead, it's gone. But there was, there was still something there. The next day, the house was full of smoke. I mean, dense folk smoke that you could not see across the living room. It, covered the house because that log continued to burn but all it did was set off smoke and then when the heat of the day came down it kept the smoke from going up the chimney and came into the house it was lovely but it's that idea of something that isn't going to go out you have to physically put it out well this anger reaches a fever pitch at some point and as i, I put put it here when god's mercy and grace they are never exhausted. But when they are ignored, at some point, judgment must come. And here, Paul is he's speaking somewhat prophetically, but he also is speaking in, uh, not prophetically in the future, but prophetically in the present, saying these people are under judgment. And that's what he's trying to say here. Is it, the, the, the phrase is a little, little confusing if, you're not, if you don't really look at it carefully. So we carry, carry forward to the next passage, which is where I intended to start the, today, originally. It starts with verse 17, which should be chapter one of verse, of cha verse 1 of chapter 3. Whoever made the chapter breaks wasn't reading it carefully. Because verses 17 through 20 fit hand in glove with verses 1 and following in chapter 3. It's a unit. So we can actually look at this. And there's, there's some parallels and some continuation, but it fits better if this was actually the beginning of, the, of chapter 3. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. So, depending on what translation you have, the first phrase, since we were torn away, 
That word torn away is amazing in the original language. And it's amazing because, well, I'll just write the Greek word up, up here and you'll see it for yourself if you look carefully. Do you see a word in there? An English word? Working. There you go. That's why we have the it translated as torn away, or in the New American Standard, it's bereft. I think the NIV actually has the word orphan in it. But what makes this amazing is that Paul, just in verses 7, was talking about a mother's love for his children. And in verse 11, was talking about a father exhorting and, and urging the care of his children to grow in the faith. And here we are, only a few verses later, he talks about being orphaned. Now, you might say, but wait, in that metaphor, Paul is the father and the mother, so how can he be an orphan? Well, in the Greek, this word meant both. A child who had lost parents, but also a parent who had lost a child. It has double meaning. We, change, we use the word orphan, and we all know what that means. That's, that's just how we, it's come into English. But this had a deeper and broader meaning. So when Paul is talking about this, he's ta not talking about a, oh, I missed our lunch appointment, and I, have been, I was torn away by work. No, it's this visceral, emotional feeling of being torn away from someone that they love completely. Now, every time I come back to this text, it, you know, it just if anyone ever accuses Paul in your, to your face of being harsh and unloving, has not read 1 Thessalonians. This is, he just met these people. And he's using some of the most emotionally charged language possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been translating, it uses the word bereaved. Right. That really gives a lot, a lot more depth. Yeah, it's as if they died. They're gone. He can't get to them. This, again, it's very emotional, very challenging. And then he says, for you, for a short time. Ah, the word time in Greek. Let me just play around with our Greek language again. You know, for us, time is time. It's just time. We all know what time is. We look at our watches and everything is chronos. That's why we are studying the Bible chronologically. <clears throat> chronologically. We're looking at it in the sweep of the calendar. That's not the word here. In the Greek, there are two words for, for, uh, for time. There's chronos and kairos. Now, you might say, so what's the difference and how, why is it important? I'm not going to put too much stock into this difference here, but it can have great difference in other passages. Um, <clears throat> let me just read you one of my uh, discoveries in it, from a teacher here. <coughs> Excuse me. Kairos, or Kairos, is not so much a succession of minutes, but a period of opportunity. Chronos refers to chronological time, to clock time, calendar time, to a general space or succession of time. Kairos, on the other hand, refers to a specific and often predetermined period or moment of time, and so views times, time in terms of events, eras, or seasons. You could say in Ecclesiastes, where every, in everything there is a season, that's kairos in the Septuagint. 
not chronos. It doesn't necessarily mean a clock. It means a opportunity or an event or a, a situation when the time is right. And he's saying it's been a short kairos, been a short time, and yet it's been a short time chronologically. But it's also been a short time in the sense of the seasons. But not in, in person, not in heart. Uh, I think it was J.B. Phillips did a great translation of this. He says, Since we have been physically separated from you, my brothers, though never for a moment separated in heart. You know what that's like. There's someone that you love dearly and you're separated by distance, by circumstance, whatever, but your heart is never separated from them. The love is still there. And it always is there. And that's what he's talking about. <clears throat> and we endeavored, i.e., we made every effort, we took speed, we took diligence, the more eagerly and with great desire. The phrase great desire is literally the word lust. It's about the only place in the New Testament where this word is used positively. This is a strong, passionate phrase here. We more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, notice the singular I. Up until this point in this letter, it's been we. Suddenly, Paul changes the tense. Now he's getting really personal. I, myself, Paul, again and again. Very unusual words here, obviously, intending the repetition of it. Attempted to come to you, but what? Satan hindered us. Oh, that's interesting. Is he speaking figuratively or literally? That's not rhetorical. Is he speaking figuratively? Literally. Is he speaking as a, just this general sense of the adversary? Or is he saying Satan is, was battling me? How about both? Okay, explain. Well, obviously he's having trouble getting there. <clears throat> so he's being hindered physically. You know. Uh-huh. Um, but there's always spiritual warfare. Always. Paul is never unaware of the spiritual battle. He calls uh, Satan the god of this age in 2 Corinthians. He calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2. He's not just casually tossing this out there. He is talking about the fact that Satan is preventing him preventing them from getting back to these people. <clears throat> now, when was the last time Paul was prevented from going somewhere? Going from Asia to Macedonia. Well, actually, he wanted to go to <coughs> Ephesus. Then he wanted to go to North. And so was it Satan that stopped him? No. Back then, he said it was God that kept him from going there. This tells me, with this contrast, Paul knows the difference. In his life, he recognized that it was God's will directing him to go eventually over to Macedonia. But here, he's saying it wasn't God. This was the enemy. And I was fighting against it. Well, Here's my, I'm going to throw this out. You, be, you all be New Testament scholars right now. Okay? So what was it that physically hindered him from going? Any ideas? His thorn in the flesh, perhaps. The thorn in the flesh, possibly. That's a good one. That's, that's actually mentioned many times. What else? Family illness. Some sort of illness that was preventing him from being able to leave 
uh, Athens and Corinth to go back. <coughs> Anybody remember <clears throat> when they were kicked out of Thessalon Thessalonica? Blah, blah, blah. Thessalonica. What was the, uh, um, let's just say, what was the legal technique that was used to get him out of town? A guy named Jason. Jason had to put money as a surety that Paul wouldn't come back. And imagine if it was a huge amount of money. This would have been a burden on Jason, on the church in Thessalonica. That could have been what it was. And that's not brought out very often. We tend to, to forget the circumstances of him being run out of town. But the, 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 the government there used financial means, not just beating him up and throwing him out the wall. They went after his friends. That's really insidious. We don't know. Actually, nobody knows. And the speculations are all very wild. In fact, Leon Morris in his commentary wrote, we should admit our ignorance and understand the term in just a general sense. <laughs> we have no idea. It's interesting to speculate. But whatever it was, in this period of time, Paul was attempting to go back from Athens, back up the coast. Maybe he couldn't get a ticket on the bus. I don't know. But there was something that was keeping him there, and he attributed it to a spiritual attack. So I went off on a little tangent of my own and my own writing and thinking here. Never discount the activity of the evil one. Never discount it. Whenever we as believers, especially in our increasingly uh, antagonistic society, when we step out in faith, why are we surprised when we get vitriol in response? Why are we surprised? Why do we get offended? Why do we get upset? It's, you know, it's part of it. It's going to happen. Charles Spurgeon had these fascinating words to say well over a hundred years ago. It's amazing how the spiritual life doesn't seem to change over time or culture or history. It's the same. He writes, Satan hinders us from all points of the compass. All along the line of battle, in the vanguard and in the rear, at the dawn of day and in the midnight hour, Satan hinders us. If we toll in the field, he seeks to break the plowshare. If we build the wall, he labors to cast down the stones. If we would serve God in suffering or in conflict, everywhere Satan hinders us. He hinders us when we were first coming to Jesus Christ. Fierce conflicts we had with Satan when we first looked at the cross and lived. Now that we're saved, he endeavors to hinder the completeness of our character. You may be congratulating yourself. I have hitherto walked consistently. No man can challenge my integrity. Beware of boasting, for your virtue will yet be tried. Satan will direct his engines against you, that every virtue for which you are the most famous. If you have been hitherto a firm believer, your faith will ere long be attacked. If you've been meek as Moses, expect to be tempted to speak unadvisedly with your lips. The birds will peck at your ripest fruit, and the wild boar will dash his tusks at your choicest vines. Wow, imagine hearing that kind of sermon every week. Um, it's so true. Everywhere you turn, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Satan is out to hinder you. The word hinder is a very interesting word. It's actually a military term. The Romans developed it in their warfare, and they basically copied it from others. But if you have an enemy that is coming towards you in great force, you find a place in the road where it either narrows or there's bogs on either side or whatever, 
and you dig a trench, a big one, so their wagons can't go over it. The horses stumble. They are hindered. It doesn't mean they're stopped. It just means they have to stop, fill it in, or build a bridge, or do whatever. Remember, if you ever you know, study World War II or whatever, one of the big things to do is to blow up the bridges to hinder the advance of the enemy. Because otherwise, well, they could still get across the river. It was to take them three or four more days. So the idea here is Satan wasn't necessarily stopping them. He was hindering them to the point that they were frustrated. Verse 19. <coughs> For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before this Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This word crown, you know, it's the word Stephen. Yay. Good word. Mm. Yes. I am Stephen. I am crown. Um, they actually found an inscription in Thessalonica that uses this word. It was a, uh, a crown was a wreath of oak leaves that was given to a person who received a grand civic honor. The inscription from Thessalonica reads this way. Those of the gymnasium decided to praise Paramenos for his aspiration to obtain and to honor him with a crown and a bronze image, natural sized and painted. And the honorific degree, decree inscribed on this will have a prominent place in the gymnasium. The crown was a part of the Thessalonican language and terminology, they understood what he meant when he called them their hope, his joy, and his crown. So it says, boasting before our Lord Jesus, just stop real quick, just a reminder, Paul uses the phrase Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ 24 times in these two letters. 24 times. That's more than any other book in the New Testament. Acts only has it 17 times. Romans only 16 times. But in his writing to the Thessalonians, he is making declarations of who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is the Christ. And he makes emphasis of it regularly. So here, that's just a side note here, because the phrase that jumps out for everybody is they see the Lord Jesus at his coming probably seen the word before many times and we're heard it. Parousia. The coming. This is the first time this word has ever been used in the New Testament. And you might say, but I, it's in Matthew. Uh, Matthew was written after Thessalonians. So chronologically, this is the first time it has ever been used specifically in relation to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Technically, it does not mean coming. Technically, it means presence because you have para, which means with or alongside, and usia, Uh, make sure I have the right word here. Being. So being with. In other words, he's coming to be with you. That's the idea. It was originally used to describe the visit of a, uh, royal, a royal person. Um, I'll just read what I found here. It could mean the coming of a deity or a coming of a person, or it could refer, refer to the coming of a dignitary, especially the coming of an emperor to a city. Therefore, Josephus used the term to talk about the coming of God to Moses or Israel, and the word appeared in 2 Maccabees with refer, reference to the coming of King Ptolemy. In memory of the parousia of Nero in Corinth, 
So Nero visited Corinth at some point in history. They minted new coins that proclaimed in Latin, Adventus, which means coming, Augusti, which means Caesar, Corinthi. In other words, the advent of Caesar coming to Corinth. And they minted coins and distributed and made a part of the thing just to celebrate this parousia. Now, we've taken it you know, much further, obviously, when we look at prophecy of the second coming of Christ. But this is the first time the word has ever been used in our text. One more quote that I found that I found thought was applicable, kind of going back again to this extraordinary emotional connection that Paul had with these people. This is from Chrysostom. Chrysostom, the early church father around 400 AD, wrote a series of homilies on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And in his homily on 1st Thessalonians, on this section, he stops addressing the text and addressed his congregation. And this is what he wrote. There is nothing I love more than you. No, not even light itself. I would gladly have my eyes put out 10,000 times over if it were possible by this means to convert your souls. So much is your salvation dearer to me than light itself. This one thing is the burden of my prayers. I long for your advancement. But that in which I strive with all is this, that I love you, that I am wrapped up in you, that you are my all, father, mother, brother, child. Extraordinary. Extraordinary love of a pastor for his people. This particular week, um, this past week, I had a chance to talk with one of my uh, clients who is a church planter. Uh, he goes out speaking on the issue, but he plant, has planted churches in the UK, planted churches in um, Long Beach, and uh, he's now starting a new church plant in San Diego. He used to, last two years, he's worked with the North American Mission Board on church planting. And we were just talking about some of his new ventures and the idea of getting back into planting a church in the San Diego area. And he said to me, he goes, my model for church planting has always been 1 Thessalonians. He says, most people turn to Acts. I don't. I go to a young church that has been firmly established and I look at that love of, of Paul for his people and I... Uh, I would like to have that in any way possible. And so I began to talk to him a little about this mother-father-orphan thing. And he goes, I missed that. Where is that again? And so we were talking about it, and I said, yeah, I'll be teaching that this Sunday. And he goes, that's, that's kind of amazing, because one of the things I want to focus on in our new church plant are the children, the Parents of people who have lost their foster children, who have lost their children into foster care due to their drug addictions and past negative things. It's like, wow, that's a major ministry. And he goes, yeah, he said, it's uh, more prevalent than you realize. These people get their act together, but they still can't get their children back because of their past actions. And what they deal with is very emotional. And I try to use Christ to help them realize they have new life. Amazing that here our study was able to help another church plant over in San Diego. So I thought you'd find that of note. Well, the text continues. We actually are now in chapter 3, officially. Um, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to stop here for a second because I'm confused. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. So we sent Timothy. But where's Silas? 
I mean, alone means alone. He's by himself. Silas isn't... Where's Silas? I started digging around here, and I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm really confused, because I thought, you know, Timothy and Silas joined him, because 1 Thessalonians starts with, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy write to you, suggesting they were all together. But maybe he was speaking... Um, broadly in including them, but they weren't there yet, or maybe they were. But now Timothy has come back, as we find out in chapter 3, so you can see my own confusion. If you look carefully in Acts chapter 18, we find, uh, it's verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews suggesting that Silas was gone at some point. We don't have the exact chronology, which frustrates those of us who are of Western mentality, who love our chronos. Um, <clears throat> there are theories that Paul sent Silas to Philippi, back to Philippi to check out how they're doing. But we just don't see the letter addressing that. Another guy wrote out the theory, says, well, maybe he sent uh, Silas back to Berea. And that letter is lost. We don't have, we've never heard of Berea again after Acts 16. They just disappear, 17, Acts 17. They just disappear from the landscape. So we don't know. <clears throat> but here's the thing. This has caused many skeptics to call into question the historicity of Acts and the letters of Paul. When you have details like this that pop up, someone goes, well, wait, the record is incomplete, so we cannot trust the record. Because we tend to want to have every detail laid out in our normal Western mentality. When you write a history, you're supposed to write a history of everything. Well, technically, as one, I found this in a footnote here in a, in a commentary, by ancient classification, Luke and Acts is not a history, but a bios, a life. In such literature, the concern of the author was not chronicling all events. Plutarch, who wrote the lives, the famous lives of Plutarch, the life of Alexander, Caesar, Pompey, and others, and he was a Roman historian. He wrote in his prelude to his life of Alexander, the multitude of their actions afford so great a field that I would be to blame if I should by, I would be to blame if I should not by way of apology forewarn my reader that I've chosen Rather than to epitomize the most celebrated parts of the story, I, I have chosen rather to epitomize the most celebrated parts of the story than to insist on every particular circumstance. In other words, didn't even John say, if I were to talk about everything that Jesus did, there mm -hmm. couldn't be enough books to hold it? He was trying to say, this is the essence of everything and the message and the core. So for Luke Acts, if you were sitting there going down, well, we kept a journal, and this is what we did at 10 after 10, and this is what we did at 10.15, um, we probably wouldn't read it. I mean, <clears throat> there's probably not too many of us in this room that have read the entire works of Josephus. They're called the Cure for Insomnia books. <laughs> they are really dry and boring. Oh my goodness sake, because he's writing history, or at least he's attempting to. And he gets so detailed in some places, you're saying, I don't care anymore. I'm, I'm done with this. And because he writes about early Christianity, we Christians only focus on that part. You don't realize it's this many books, and the Christian part is this, because he was writing the history of Rome, the antiquities of Rome. Yeah. I don't want to belabor this because it's not very important to the rest 
passage, but I guess I'm just confused why there's even a situation because it says we were, I mean, unless my translation is totally wrong, it says we were willing to be left alone. So that means why isn't that mean Paul and Silas were being ready to be left alone and Timothy was sent? Why it says we, it doesn't say I, Paul, was left True. alone. And true, it all comes back to the I versus the we. Was he speaking we specifically, or was he speaking we metaphorically? Well, just the paragraph before, he said I. Well, see, it comes back to the problem then. If we get too detailed there, there are those who would say that this book was not written by Paul. It was written by three people. Well, I'm just saying it says. It's not important. It is a good statement. But it does throw in this question of, well, where's Silas? And he's just not mentioned in here. So we sent, sent, we sent Timothy, our brother, up to Thessalonica from Athens. That is a 220-mile trip. So 220 miles from here, by car, will put you where? North or south? Where would you be? You'd be well past Flagstaff. You'd be uh, halfway to the Grand Canyon, wouldn't you? You go south, you're almost to the border. That's a long way to walk, especially with the mountainous region of Greece. Mount Olympus is in between Athens and Thessalonica. This is not a you know, nice straight path. They figure it would take 10 to 11 days to make the trip if he went by land. I mean, they could have gone by sea, which is uh, very possible, would have cut down some of the time. But if he got, spends 10 or 11 days to go, then spends a full week in Thessalonica, and then another 10 or 11 days to come back, Timothy's been gone for a month. And if our chronology is right, Paul's only been away from Thessalonica for three months. You have the fact that Paul wanted so desperately to go back to Thessalonica means he felt that way immediately upon leaving. So all that time in Berea and then being knocked out of Berea and then he's down in Athens and now he's over in Corinth, that whole time <coughs> from the very beginning, he wanted to get back there. And so, at one point, he finally said, Timothy, you need to go back. Find out what's going on. And so he did. Verse 3, that no one be moved or unsettled by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are destined for this. We are destined to Afflictions, we are destined to spread the gospel. Uh, Philippians 1.16, Paul writes, I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. But then, over in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is going to be a tough road. There's no question, but we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept repeatedly telling you beforehand that we were going to suffer. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. <coughs> for this reason, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. <coughs> Excuse me. And your labor would be in vain. <coughs> the word tempter, the only other time it's used that way. Any ideas? When is Satan called the tempter? <coughs> At the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. So that phrase, the tempter, is only used here and in Matthew chapter 4. The tempter is tempting you. Sorry. <coughs> yeah, the cough is still with me. It's only been two months now.
But now Timothy has come back and has brought us good news of your faith. Good news is the Greek evangelion. The good news of the gospel. But wait, he's not talking about the gospel. He has brought us good news. Literally good news. This is the only place in the New Testament where that phrase, the good news, is not used about the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that, because we can talk about, hey, I got good news today. You're not saying, oh, I got the salvation of Jesus Christ today. That isn't what you're meaning. And that isn't what it's meaning here. So that, but it's the only time it's used that way. But we got news of your faith and love that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And for this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The distress and affliction. The word distress means to be choking or pressing. The word affliction. This is the second time it's been used in this uh, chapter. It's actually the word thalipsis. It means a crushing weight. Originally, this word meant expressed a fear, physical a sheer physical pressure on a man. Medically, thalipsis, or affliction, meant taking someone's pulse. You press on it. That means to press. It also can mean the pressing of grapes, where you crush them to get the juice out of them. It means to be squeezed or placed under great pressure beneath a weight. According to the ancient law of England, those who willfully refused to plead guilty when it was known they were guilty, they would lay them on a board and place heavy weights on their chest and crush them to death. And that pressing was the word Thlipsis, the pressing, crushing weight. So when Paul talks about being distressed and having affliction, he's not saying, hey, yeah, we had a tough day at work. They felt the intensity of this antagonism toward their message on a daily basis. But they have been comforted when they heard that the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica have stayed strong. For now, verse 8, now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And we pray most earnestly, day and night, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 10, as we pray... Most earnestly. I want to look real carefully at this, just quickly. The typical word for prayer is prosuke. Very typical. It's the word we see all the time in the Greek. But here, it's a different word. It's the Greek word diomai, D-O-M-A-I. And this means to implore, or to beseech, or to pray with insistence. There's an intensity here that's then added when you see the rest of the phrase. We insist, we beseech most earnestly, a double emphasis. As Leon Morris wrote, he said, you get the sense here that Paul is struggling to put his feelings into words. He's using extremely, again, I've said this before, extremely emotional language to describe how much and how earnest they were praying for this to be resolved. They wanted so badly to get there. Then comes verses 11 to 13. There are those who will say that because this is technically a prayer, that this is the end of the letter. And that what we have in chapters 4 and 5 was either appended later 
or is a different letter that has been merged with this one. Because it's rare for Paul to have a long excursus and then suddenly have a prayer like this. He doesn't do that normally. However, to fly in the face of those critics, usually when Paul is ending a letter, he ends with a doxology, not a prayer. And if you look at the end of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see he ends it with, um, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a doxology. That's an end. This isn't really an end, but it's still a prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and overflow, abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish, strengthen your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Last week, uh, Colleen and I were talking after the service and she made a very interesting statement. She says, we don't pray for our son for happiness. We pray for our son for holiness. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Goodness. And that prayer is one that we should pray for ourselves. You might say, oh, I want to be happy. <coughs> no, you don't. Because happiness can be dissolved so quickly. But if you pray for holiness, well, satisfaction comes with that. And the glory of the Lord shines around you and upon you when that happens. And this is what Paul is praying for here. He's praying that their hearts are established in holiness. (coughs) Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for this rich word, for all the great things that you have for us here. As we search the scripture, we find bits and pieces that remind us how important it is that we have our eyes always focused on you and for what your will is for us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.